about love and wisdom. Because in English, the word love can mean many different things. And it's helpful to understand and to begin to distinguish and discriminate between some of these different meanings of love. So when we do discriminate in this way, we can begin to understand the role that wisdom plays in the development of love. One kind of love that we're very familiar with is love with desire or love with attachment. There's a a phrase in Pali which describes this, tanha pema, love with craving. And often our worldly understanding or the conventional understanding of love is precisely this. I think love songs through the ages have mostly been songs of longing. And we take that to be love. And popular love songs, you know, in the last years, always, when you listen to the lyrics, what are they singing about? I want you, I need you, I love you. As if all of those are synonymous, as if they're all the same. This kind of love is always mixed up with a kind of wanting or a kind of greed. And to that extent, to the extent that there is desire or attachment in the mind, to that extent, there are unskillful states of mind happening. One of the things which characterizes this kind of love is that it's always for a limited object. It's for one person or a group of people. Do you know of anyone who is filled with this kind of love, of longing, of wanting, of desire, that desires everyone? (laughs) Maybe there are a few. (laughs) But mostly in this kind of love, it's like we fixate on one person or a few people or a group of people With this kind of love, love with desire or attachment, we're not able to develop wisdom. Because we're not able to see with eyes unclouded by longing. And that's really what wisdom is about. Wisdom is seeing clearly without any filter on our perception. When we are filled with the love of desire and the love of attachment, at that time, generally we are not seeing impermanence. We're not seeing the transiency of things. We really are in this world of enchantment. And precisely because we can't recognize at that time, because of our attachment and desire, we can't see the impermanence of situation, of relationships, of people. Because we're not seeing the impermanence, 
we get caught and conditioned by attachment. And to the extent that there's attachment, there's suffering. Something quite interesting happens with this love of desire. And that is that it is easily transformed into ill will. As you may have noticed. (laughs) Because when we're desiring or attached to a certain set of conditions, when what we want is a person to be a certain way or a situation to be a certain way, conditions to stay the same, when we're wanting that, and the love is dependent on that, what happens when those conditions change? This love that we had, which was dependent upon those conditions, frequently gets changed into ill will. When we just observe this in our own experience, in the experience of people around us, we see that this love with desire, love with wanting, love with attachment, is not very reliable because it depends on conditions staying the same and conditions never stay the same. And so there's a basic unreliability. When we're relating to people with this kind of love, love with attachment, what happens when we see them suffer? the feeling that comes up in us is one of sorrow. It's interesting just to see in ourselves, given all the suffering that's in the world, and yet for the most part, we're not sorrowing for the suffering in the world. We sorrow for the suffering of people we're attached to. And it's interesting to see what is the quality of this sorrow. Is it coming from love or is it coming from attachment? These discriminations are very delicate because they really go beyond the conventional understanding of things. They go beyond the cultural understanding, which tends to jumble up love and desire and sorrow and compassion as if it's all one thing. One of the beauties of this kind of retreat and the stillness that can come from the practice is that we actually can begin to discriminate between these subtle differences in the mind. And as we refine our perception of what is love and what is desire, what is sorrow and what is compassion, we really refine our perception, we refine our understanding of what love is and the possibilities that that opens for us in our lives. There's another kind of love with attachment. that strikes particularly at the heart of meditators. And this is a kind of 
attachment or desire to meditative states. Because what can happen as the practice deepens may not have happened in these first few days, but can and does happen, is that we begin to experience some extraordinary happiness out of our practice. We begin to experience states of peace and of calm and of stillness and of love and of compassion that bring a happiness to us that's quite extraordinary that we have not experienced in our more mundane daily life because it's born out of a depth of stillness. What happens though is that we can begin to practice for these states. Sometimes we have very unusual experiences or some really striking insight into the nature of the mind or the nature of ourselves. And we get attached to that experience or to that insight and we try to recreate it. Trying to recreate experience or recreate an insight is like dragging a corpse around. No, it's something that we've experienced, we've had, has come and gone. But no, we kind of pull it along behind us. There are so many different ways we get attached with this kind of desire, this kind of love. At different times in my practice with Upandita, there was one time I was going through a stage where just the perception was so refined and so subtle. And I was just delighting in the exquisiteness of how clearly things could be seen. And I, I, my mind was just getting pulled in to this level. And after a few days of reporting this, he said, you're too attached to subtlety. <laughs> and here I thought this was the whole name of the game. <laughs> And it is the name of the game in one sense, but the attachment to it is extra. And it's very easy to get attached to this. Or we can get attached just to feelings of spaciousness or openness. I spent some weeks in practice every day going in and reporting really terrible pain you know, and I was just kind of slogging through it. And then one day the pain all it sort of broke up and I was just in this, like I was floating in outer space. And it felt, ah, finally, you know, I'm, I'm getting someplace. And I reported it for a day or two. And the third day, he looks at me with the same look. <laughs> and he said, haven't you enjoyed this long enough? <laughs> you know three days after weeks of pain. It's important, it's very important as we sort of undertake this spiritual path, understanding that just as we can get caught in the love, in a worldly sense, 
that's filled with desire and attachment. We can get caught with this more subtle kind of attachment, which is the attachment to meditative states. There's a third kind of love, and that is the love of metta. And this quality of the heart, this quality of the mind, is extremely smooth and soft and gentle. And it's the simple wishing well for all beings. There's a great simplicity in metta. It's the feeling of may all beings be happy. One of the things which characterizes this feeling of metta or loving kindness is that it doesn't make any discrimination between beings. We're not saying, I'll love those closest to me or I'll love them the most and other people less. That's not the quality of metta. The quality of metta is not dependent on conditions. Rather, it is this feeling from the heart. It's an offering of the heart to all beings. May all beings be happy. It's not dependent on conditions. It's not dependent on how people are behaving. What gives metta its extraordinary power is that there is no one and nothing which lies outside of its domain. And that's why in the Buddhist teachings it's called one of the illimitables because it's not limited. It's not bounded. There was a 18th century Japanese poet named Isa who wrote a wonderful haiku which embodies this feeling of the boundless boundlessness of metta. He wrote, In the cherry blossom's shade there is no such thing as a stranger. In the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. In the feeling of metta, there's no such thing as a stranger. When we can disentangle these different kinds of love, when we can look in a very practical way at our relationships, at our intimate day-to-day relationships with the people closest to us. Will it be possible to examine carefully and to see what part of that relationship is wanting? What part is desire? What part is greed? What part of it is dependent on that person being a certain way? And what part of it is the love of metta? What part is a more unconditional love? It doesn't mean that after a week of metta practice, we're going to go out in the world, no more desire, no more attachments, 
you know, and it was just our hearts filled with matter. No. <laughs> this force of desire in the mind is extremely deep. And it's said that it's not uprooted from consciousness until the third stage of enlightenment. Very, it's a way off for, <laughs> for most of us. And so it's not a question of, well, I shouldn't feel any desire and I should only feel metta. That's not realistic. What I think is realistic, and it will come from a great willingness and interest to actually bring this discriminating awareness into our lives so that we can see clearly that that's desire, that's attachment, that's love, that's metta. Because when we can distinguish them, rather than them being all mixed up, from that place of discernment, we can begin to develop the one and to weaken the other. If we can't discern the difference, then we just go on feeding old habits of conditioning. This practice of metta, as with all the practices of meditation, really has to do with the transformation of our consciousness. Each time we drop this pebble of a loving thought into the pond or the sea of consciousness, it ripples out. There's a transforming power. And we do that over and over again. And the quality of our consciousness begins to change. We can see this happening, even in a little way, on the retreat itself. Just by observing those times when we actually touch a deeper place of loving feeling. Now we're repeating the phrases and repeating them, and maybe there's not a lot of feeling. Then maybe for one phrase in a sitting, or several times in a sitting, we repeat a phrase and we really feel the heart connection of it. Because each time we can touch that space, that is the transforming power. And it doesn't last, and the mind goes back to a more superficial level. We keep doing it, and we touch that place again. So slowly we expand ourselves, expand the level or the depth of the loving feeling which we have. You also experience this transformation in another way. And that is in watching our minds in relation to difficult people, to hostile people. Because in our ordinary consciousness, we create a polarity. And it's a pol- polarization based on ill will or aversion. When we begin to practice metta towards difficult people, towards hostile people, this metta feeling is one which doesn't polarize but actually embraces. 
it surrounds. It's as if we're holding this person in our minds and in our hearts, seeing them just as they are, seeing them with all their difficulties, and yet rather than creating an opposition, we're holding them, may you be happy. May you be free of your obnoxious qualities. (laughs) (laughs) Said lovingly, of course. (laughs) We shouldn't neglect the gift that an enemy or a hostile person gives to us. Something very powerful is happening because in that situation, in that relationship, we are brought to the edge, to the boundary of what we can open to. So often, theoretically, in, in many domains and in spiritual practice as well, we have the idea that we like to play the edge. We like to be brought right to the edge and to open. That's a nice idea. But in the actual event of it, we see that it's difficult. Working with a difficult person is providing us that opportunity. Saying, okay, you have opened this far, can we open even more? In many of the Dalai Lama's teachings, he speaks about the development of gratitude to one's enemies. Because it shows us the limitations of our capacity for love, shows us the limitations of our capacity for patience, and gives us the working possibility right there to go beyond those limitations. So seen in that way, we enter into a new relationship with these kinds of difficult people. It really becomes a gift to us. The Buddha spoke of 11 benefits of developing this loving heart. I just wanted to run briefly through them to give you an idea of the range of things that happen as the metta is developed. The first, sleeping well and waking easily. Instead of waking grumpily, (laughs) it's like fall asleep easily, wake up easily, happily. No fearful dreams. In Vipassana, when we're doing the insight practice, we're really stirring up trouble. <laughs> you know, it's going in there and it's opening us up to all kinds of levels of suffering and a lot of psychic goings on. And people typically report very intense and vivid and sometimes scary dreams. In metta, as it develops, in the beginning there may be some of the same thing happening, but generally as the metta begins to settle in, what happens is that the mind becomes very soft in the dream state as well as in the waking state. 
So sleep well and wake well in pleasant dreams. Loved by people and devas. Devas are celestial beings. Think for a moment of the most loving person you know. How do you feel about them? Generally, we feel very loving towards loving people because it's a very contagious mind state. And when we're in that presence of real metta, of genuine metta, not not the love of somebody wanting something from us, but just this loving wish that we be happy, what's our response? It's a great open heart. And so as we develop that in ourselves, we find that people are responding to us in just that way. Free of danger. As we become more loving, more meta-filled, it acts as a protection. But I must tell you one story for those of you who have not yet heard it. Because it's important that the metta be genuine for this benefit to accrue. (laughs) Some years ago, Sharon was living in a house sort of deep in the woods in Western Mass. And I was visiting. And I was walking down this road and there was a very aggressive dog barking and I'm walking and I have to pass this dog and I'm saying, be happy, be happy, (laughs) be happy, be happy and the dog comes over and bit me. (laughs) So it made me wonder about the quality of my matter. (laughs) And in wondering about it, it became obvious that it really wasn't meta at all. You know, it really was be happy and stay over there. (laughs) It's important as we are practicing this both here and out in the world, just to stay sensitive to how easily it is for other qualities to sneak in, you know, and in some way to pollute the actual purity of the metta. Protected by deities. Buddha said that that was also one of the benefits of metta. There's a wonderful Buddhist cosmology which is very vast. Now we generally have a very limited view of what life is about and where life happens. The Buddha had this vision based on his his own experience, his own vision, of countless lifetimes and over, over huge, huge periods of time, eons of time and different planes of existence and infinite world systems and it just goes on and on in this vastness, vastness of understanding. And there are beings who can actually see other planes of existence through the development of certain powers of mind. 
one of the nice stories about one of these heavenly planes. And this you can take in any way that you like. You can take it metaphorically, you can take it literally. But it's said that the ruler of one of the celestial planes sits on this throne that warms up through acts of great virtue of human beings. So it kind of alerts these devas, these celestial beings, to... It's just a nice thought. (laughs) (laughs) Whether that's so or not, can't know for sure, or the present anyway. What we can begin to tune into, though, is this very real and tangible sense of protection that metta brings. And as we practice it, it is a a very tangible sense of being protected. And I think that we can understand it in various ways. We could understand it as the protection of other beings, We can understand it as the protection that comes from less fear in the mind. And the more metta we have, the less fear that there is. Another benefit of metta is that we can concentrate easily. And this is a very profound benefit. Because as the metta gets strong, the hindrances, which Sharon spoke of the other night, become weaker. As the metta is developed, there's less ill will, there's less restlessness, there's less agitation, there's less worry. Because the hindrances are less, our ability to concentrate is tremendously enhanced. Concentration is the prerequisite for the development of wisdom. We must be able to focus our minds to open to deeper and deeper levels in order to come to a true understanding. And so we see the role that metta plays in the development of wisdom. Another benefit is a kind of radiance or beauty. And it's quite interesting to see this in people who may not have a particularly conventional beauty. But when they're filled with metta, it's like there is a shining quality. And it's very beautiful. The last of the benefits is that we die peacefully. We die without fearful images. And given the Buddhist understanding of life and death and rebirth, the quality of death is very important. It's an important moment. So to be doing those practices which will allow us or give us the strength to stay peaceful at the time of death is tremendously important. These are some of the benefits that happen as we practice. Metta is also the basis for the developing of the feeling of compassion. 
When we are filled with this kind of love and we see someone suffering, it does not lead us into sorrow, which has in it seeds of aversion. But when we're filled with metta and we see somebody suffering, what arises in us is this very pure feeling of compassion, this sense in the heart of wanting to alleviate the suffering. It's not a hatred towards it. It's not an anger towards it. It's a feeling for it that wants to alleviate it. There's one very nice little anecdote about compassion, which I like a lot. It's about the Zen monk and poet Ryokan said he was filled with so much love and compassion that on a sunny day he would open up his robes and, and take the lice out of his robes and put them on a rock to sun. <laughs> and then when the sun went down, he'd take them and put them back in his robe. <laughs> That's compassion. <laughs> There is a tremendous amount of suffering in the world, you know, and in very many realms it's very obvious. It's just the suffering of, of violence and of war and of poverty and disease and it goes on and on and we're, we're all pretty tuned to that. It's important to stay connected no. In some way, we lead very privileged lives, very different than the lives of most of humanity. And to awaken this feeling of compassion, it comes from the development of metta in response to situations of suffering. And so we want to stay open to the suffering that's in the world. But it's not only the suffering that's out there. Because even if in our own little island there's relative peace and security and well-being, when we look closer, we see that there's suffering right here in our own lives. There's the suffering in the body. There's pain in the body and there's disease in the body and it gets older. And there's weakness in the body, and there's illness, and there's death. When we look at our minds, when we really look honestly and carefully and sensitively, there's a tremendous amount of suffering in the mind. You know, of anger, and fear, and loneliness, and unworthiness, and anxiety, and depression. And there's a long list. The great opening for us is to see that suffering is not just out there, outside of ourselves, and that it's not just an individual problem. It's not that it's a problem for some individuals. 
But we really begin to understand suffering as being a universal experience. And as we realize this, and we realize it by looking at ourselves, really opening, being willing to open to the suffering that's inside of ourselves, we begin to see very clearly the commonality of all of us. The very fact that it's a universal experience creates a very strong bond that is much deeper than the apparent differences. And it's precisely out of this feeling of oneness, out of this feeling of commonality that we all share in this, that the feeling of compassion arises. We may not all feel it in the same way. So we shouldn't create a model of how we should be feeling compassion. Some people are very empathetic and they feel it in that way. Some people feel it as a great interest in others. Some people feel it as a sense of great caring of others. But compassion, in whatever way we feel it, comes from our openness, the openness of our hearts to feeling the suffering that's there. If we're filled with metta, the suffering opens us to compassion. If we're filled with attachment, the suffering opens us to sorrow. And just to say, just to watch in our lives, what is it that's happening? There's also a specific meditation for compassion, just like there is for metta. And it's done by focusing on a person who is in a lot of suffering and simply repeating the phrase, may you be free of suffering. Metta wishes well for all beings. Compassion focuses on the suffering of beings. It's a very specific quality of the heart. Like metta, compassion is not limited to a particular group of people. It's often very easy for us to feel compassion for victims of injustice or victims of exploitation. The boundary, the edge for us, can we feel compassion for the perpetrators of injustice? Can we really make the compassion as boundless as the metta? This is a stretch. We really have to come to a different way of understanding things. Because often we consider our anger or our hatred justified for people who are doing harmful things. Well, I should feel angry at them. But that's a limited viewpoint. It's a conventional viewpoint. There's a place underneath where we can see the harm that's being done, see the harmful action, and understand that it's coming from ignorance. 
Ignorance of why? Ignorance of the very fact that it's causing suffering. Ignorant of the commonality of the human experience. Ignorance of their own pain that's causing that kind of action. Ignorance of the law of karma. That every action bears fruit. And when we see people doing harmful things, it's like we're seeing them plant the seeds of their own future suffering and doing it out of ignorance. When we are relating to the ignorance behind the action, it's much easier to respond from a compassionate place. Our response then becomes, how can I help this person awaken from the ignorance? And sometimes it may mean very strong or direct action. It's very different when it comes from a place of compassion or it comes from a place of hatred. One of the beautiful things about reading the life of the Buddha is that he was a master of compassionate action in so many different ways. He had the ability to see and to feel just what each person needed. There there are countless stories of the Buddha manifesting in this way. One time there was somebody who was very sick and a very unpleasant disease. And nobody would take care of this monk. The Buddha went and said that he bathed the wounds and cleaned his body and then he taught them, he taught him the teaching of liberation. Just to see that he worked on all the different levels on whatever was appropriate. The story of one woman who came through a very strange set of circumstances, lost her husband, lost her children, and overcome with grief, she came in to the presence of the Buddha, so full of grief and so full of sorrow. And the Buddha, through the power of his metta, was able just to soothe the mind of this woman. And he took time, and he took care And when her mind was soothed to some extent, he gave her the teachings and she became fully enlightened. It's just knowing the right way to handle situations. Sometimes you need to be quite strong. The story of the Buddha's charioteer, while he was still uh, a prince, the Buddha, this was, this was the fellow who drove his horse and they had grown up as childhood friends. And after the Buddha became enlightened, this charioteer also became a monk. He joined the order. But he goofed off. He, you know, he was kind of counting on the fact of his old palship with the Buddha to carry him through. And so he never did any work. He never did any practice. And this went on throughout the Buddha's whole life. And even with much admonishment, He didn't do anything. So just before the Buddha died, 
he, he announced to the whole assemblage of monks that from thenceforth, nobody should speak to this monk. Then the Buddha died. I, you can imagine being <laughs> the great enlightened awakened Buddha and one of the last instructions he gives. You know, nobody speak to him. <laughs> but what happened? The, the impact of that. I mean, he was so ashamed of that having happened that it woke him up. He started to practice. He became fully enlightened. You know, so sometimes we need different strategies to wake us. Metta is the basis for this development of compassion. It's also the basis for the development of another quality of mind, which is wonderfully beautiful. And it's the quality, in Pali the word is mudita. And it means, or it's translated as sympathetic joy. This means the quality of mind which takes happiness in the happiness of others. Without metta as the base, when we see other people happy, it's very easy for envy to arise in the mind or jealousy or certain stinginess, kind of a not wanting other people to prosper. It's interesting that mudita is said to be the hardest of these qualities to develop. Even though I think we all appreciate its beauty of rejoicing in other people's happiness, it's the hardest one to actually develop because the power of our comparing and judging mind is so strong. Sometimes we might feel mudita or this joy for the happiness of others when they're getting things that we don't particularly want for ourselves. So then it's easy. Yeah, oh, I'm glad, glad you're happy. <laughs> but if somebody's enjoying something that we want, then just to watch what our mind does. You know, is it as filled with mudita? Or is it filled with envy or jealousy? This can happen in meditation also. It's not uncommon. You know, we're sitting on a retreat and we just have some idea or impression that somebody else is doing better than we are, whatever that means to us. <laughs> you know, they're walking slower. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we think they're progressing more quickly. I had an interesting taste of this when I was practicing in Burma. There was a friend from here who, who was there also as a monk and he had been practicing for some years there and having wonderful experience. He had been practicing uninterruptedly and he's, uh, he was really radiant. His energy was so clear and pure. And I was struggling with my metta, <laughs> trying to say the words. <laughs> and I'd look over at him and I could just see the tendency of my mind to get into this kind of 
comparing or kind of envy or you know, wishing he wasn't quite so happy. <laughs> but by that time, having learned this meditation on mudita, where then there's an actual practice one can do, and having built up some foundation of metta, I just, as soon as I saw that tendency in my mind, I started doing the practice of mudita, which basically is the repetition of the phrases like, may your happiness continue, may your success grow, may your happiness not leave you. And something quite extraordinary happens. As soon as I started doing that, the feeling of comparing and judging and envy, it just vanished. But even more than that was the kind of happiness that started to come from that mind state of mudita. And there was this wonderful realization that not only is other people's happiness not a loss to us, but actually can become the basis for our own happiness. And that's the power of this particular mind state. When there's a strong quality of metta as the foundation, then sympathetic joy easily can overcome the comparing, the envy, the jealousy. And that's a great ally for us in our lives. Through the strengthening of metta, through the practice of it in a very soft and gentle and persevering way, compassion begins to grow. Sympathetic joy begins to grow. And what happens is that these states become the foundation for a happy and a loving life. This is what we're doing. As you sit and as you walk and as you cultivate this quality of love, the love of metta, it has tremendous impact, not only for the time here, but for how we live our lives outside. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.